Hey, what's up, suckers? It's Katie Hartman. Papa Will Nunziata told me to make the intro. He held a gun to my head and a knife to my throat and said, You make the intro for this for this episode. And I said, No, Papa Nunziata, no. And he said, I wrote this script. You gotta read it. And I said, Okay, I'll do it in my closet. And so that's where I am. All right, here we go. Are the gates locked? The locks on the gate should be locked. I hope they are. That was me improvising. Hey, welcome to the Godween Evan podcast and our continuation of our side quest, The Interviews. Today we are talking with a very big name in music. The man who can be credited with discovering Ween or at least setting them loose into the world. Uh, Twin Tone Records, Capitol Records, A&R Man, Dave Ayers. Yars, yars, yargs. That's me clapping with my voice. Uh, Okay, but before we get into that, we got some Ween tour dates. We got February 18th, 19th, 20th. Ween is doing a three-night stand in Port Chester, New York at the Capitol Theater, the place where I first saw Ween ever. Uh, I don't personally have tickets because I don't have any money, but if anybody has got extras and they want to slip them under the closet door, you let me know. Guys, Friday, March 18th at the Royal Oak Music Theater in Royal Oak, Michigan. Uh, Ween's also going to be at Saturday, March 19th and Sunday the 20th at the Riviera Theater in Chicago. And uh, we kind of assume that uh, April and May dudes dates are going to be announced soon. All right, there's some rescheduled 2021 shows happening in the summer of 2022, but uh, I think we can all agree, fuck covid forever. Just a reminder, Godween Evan is a part of the Osiris Media Group. Please go to osirispod.com to see all their podcast offerings. They've got musics, podcasts, movies, podcasts, comedy podcasts, and of course, our podcast. And you can go and show them some love. Get in there. All right. Today, uh, we, and by we, I mean Will, and we as in the audience, we are very lucky to uh, talk to a man with almost zero public information. A mystery man. Very little is known about it. Google is not your friend when it comes to Dave Ayers. He's done a great job avoiding social media. I wish we could all be that way, but some of us are addicted. He discovered Ween, and he signed them to Twin Tone Records, and uh, he was there every single step of the way from that signing until the release and promotion of Chocolate and Cheese. Dave Ayers also signed for some of Will's favorite bands, um, and I mean, mine too, but let's just say Ween, this is, this is the list that we'll put down. Ween to, uh, Jesus Lizards to Sunvolt, Uncle Tupelo, Wilco, TV on the Radio, Black Keys, St. Vincent's, and Flight of the Concords. Let's get into it. This is Will Nunziata's conversation with Dave Ayers. Also, I miss you all. So here I am on the phone uh, with Dave Ayers. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I, I didn't get to hear your 
theme music because I assume there's theme music in the background, right? Yeah, we, we it's it's usually a, a new Ween song every week. Sometimes we do real deep dives, and sometimes it's just uh, any song that's appropriate. You know what? How about you pick the Ween song? Uh, what song Ween song would you like to come out to uh, for this episode? Uh, Big Jim. Big Jim. Done and done. Mikey, make that note. All right. Uh, so Dave. Um, Let's just start at the beginning. Uh, where are you from, and how did you get started uh, in the music biz? Uh, I'm from a little town in uh, eastern Minnesota, right on the Wisconsin border, about uh, 20 miles from the capital of St. Paul, um, called Stillwater, Minnesota. And uh, yeah, there was there's uh, the the closest proximity to the music business in Stillwater, Minnesota growing up in the 1950s and 60s was that the band director uh, was kind of the biggest celebrity in town because our little town won whatever band competition every year. So yeah, that was that was about as much about the music business as I knew. And to be afraid of that guy because he would hurl drumsticks at people. <laughs> like whiplash. Um, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that was that was where I grew up, and it was you know the, the classic bucolic nineteen sixties small town America. All right, and so let's build up that the the Dave Ayers Ween timeline. So you get started, uh, you start off as a music journalist. Um, I'm assuming in high school, after high school, college era. Yeah, college. My dad was a music fan, so there were records you know in the house, um, and. Uh, so yeah, and then in college, I, you know, I, I had developed an interest in in writing, and uh, just sort of the easiest thing to write was record reviews. Mm-hmm. So I, I first went to college in, at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and uh, you know, you got paid like five bucks to write a couple of paragraphs about some record. Um, so that was yeah, that was my introduction to both writing and you know, music from some vaguely professional aspect. And what was your what was your band or what was the or what was the music that made you want to write? Um, you know, growing up, uh, there was you know the classic like you know I was what fourteen, fifteen uh, in nineteen seventy one when all of those great records came out. Um, so, uh, which we've been, you know, we've spent last year revisiting because it was the 50th anniversary. So a lot of that stuff was probably too cerebral, you know, the Marvin Gaye, what's going on and, and fly. And those things were probably too, uh, heady for somebody my age. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there, there was definitely political consciousness. There was a, you know, Vietnam war thing that was the subject of much debate in my household. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you know those those records made an imprint, um, along with much more mainstream things like you know Carol King Tapestry and Elton John Madman Across the Water. You know those those were all things that I remember from my youth. But in college, the thing that really turned my head around, um, not just about music, but about like culture and gender and everything, sort of was was Patti Smith Horses, which I know is a story that. I share with a lot of other people, but that was really a watershed moment for me in terms of just like awakening. Um, so yeah, that record probably as much as anything. Oh, 
Very cool. Let's see, and that's a record I uh, I've never sat down and contended with that record yet, and I should. It's it's it's, it's a long it's a long stroll from there to Ween. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but but uh, the no, it's you know, it's just like the the the, um, the fearlessness, the androgyny, the um, the poetry. You know, there's just a lot of things about it that just struck me again coming from small town middle america like it was the f- most fucking foreign thing that you know uh i had run across um that actually sort of impacted me probably in ways i didn't understand initially and i think you know to your point a lot of records that have become really important to me over the years were things that i didn't really understand at first yeah um and if I didn't have the patience to go back, then there's probably shit that I'm still missing. I'm, you know, no doubt. I've, I've, you know, I've tried three times with the Trout Mask Replica. Like every decade, I oh, try. Nice. Me too. I, I, I love, I love Beefheart. I just don't understand that record, and it's meant to be his masterpiece. So, um, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I fight with that record. Yeah, it's about once a decade. I'm like, oh, maybe this is the decade. Maybe I'm the right age now for for, for some Trout Mask. But nope. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big jazz guy, and I have a friend. Um, you know, Mingus is one of the more important uh, artists to me of, uh, you know, the last, you know, 75 years. And um, I have a friend who's, uh, who was, you know, once upon a time, Wayne's attorney, um, also a big jazz fan. Um, and Black Saint, the Sinner Lady, you know, maybe my favorite Mingus record, one that he can't wrap his head around. It's the same thing. It's just like, if you can't find your entry point, um, yeah, you're kind of sunk. Yeah, and that's and I mean that is the that was the struggle of our entire podcast was to find the entry point for Evan to get into the band. <laughs> that's right. And it and it took it took a year, Dave, a year of forcing him before we found he likes your party off La Cucaracha. Oh well. Oh, that's a well. That's such a yeah. That's a, that's that's a that's a good spot to enter. I mean, I I know your pain because I've lived I've lived that story for the last. You know how many years is it? Thirty. Thirty years, years of trying to get people to like yeah. <laughs> yeah, thirty-five years, thirty-seven years now. Of, no, no, no. You you don't understand. Um, you know, people who think they're making fun of music, um, which is absolutely not true. Um, uh, so yeah, it's I I, I get it. Your yeah. party. Yeah, and 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 coincidentally, it was the last song that they recorded. Was finally when it opened the door for Evan. Go That's figure. wild. Um, so you're, did you go all the way back to the beginning with him? Did you play him things to, we, like the more sort of tuneful things from early days? Yeah, we we didn't go before Godwin Satan. We kept it all like the studio records, um, right? Because I mean, the stuff that you heard, you know, before you signed them, uh, that was that would have been a complete roadblock to Evan. So we took his well, love of Prince and then tried to work our way in from there. And then when that kind backfired. Of a, yeah, you know. kind of a roadblock for me to those early things are. Um, but, uh, you know, you fucked up or, you know, how can you not understand that? Who hasn't been mad at their mom um, or, or, or baby bitch or LMLYP? Those are there's some universal, some universal truth. Um, I agree. In, 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 in those things. Um, that I think for an adolescent male uh, are going to resonate, but I'm assuming Evan's not 14. No, and and that was also part of the problem. He's he was he was an adult. He was you know 32, I think, when we started. 
So and so a lot of his um his tastes were sealed uh by that point. Yeah, and probably you know, he'd he'd been woke a bit. Um Yes, hundred percent. He, he, he had a Patty Smith moment or of some sort, um, somewhere along the line. Yeah, you kinda had to you know, with some of the weed stuff you kinda had to be there right place, right time, um for, you know, some of the the let's say browner stuff to kind of to get through and to not uh, worry about it. Well, um, yeah. And some of it like context is everything. Um, Bumblebee, uh, which goes way back there. Right. Oh yeah. Um, That the story of that vocal, um, which you definitely really had to be there. He wasn't quite getting it. So they locked him. They put a mic outside and locked him outside in the freezing cold. So that's what you're hearing, um, it, you know, and him shrieking, um, "Bumblebee, sting me!" is a really fucking cold Aaron Freeman. Yeah, that's <laughs> so great. Um, so you're you're a music journalist, and then uh, a job at Twin Tone opens, and you jump in. Can you just tell us that story quick? Well, just, I, you know, uh, Minneapolis, you know, much bigger town than Stillwater, Minnesota. But um, at, at the time, a, a, you know, not a metropolis of, of uh, culture. And to this day, you know, a, a bigger than its britches, maybe, in terms of culture. But it's not New York or L.A. or even Chicago. So um, I just happened to be there at a great time. You know, it was like Prince and, you know, one side of the fence and then uh, – the replacements and and Husker do on the other and um i just happened to be in the right place at the right time and you know the nme and cream and rolling stone and things knew something was happening in minneapolis but nobody really wanted to send somebody out there um too expensive and who wanted to go there in the winter time right so i i ended up you know writing for those people um it's just like you know a guy in minneapolis that um could turn in some copy and so I got to know the people at Twin Tone because I wrote about their bands um, and a position opened up. We became friends and it's like, you know, we're going to compile a mailing list and we're going to keep it in this computer. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> you're going to what? Um, and, uh, you know, if you want to do some data entry, it's just like entering names and addresses in this computer a couple hours a day. So I did that for a little while. And then... Um, a, a real job opened up being a publicist there. And since I knew the other side of the table, um, you know, it seemed like a logical thing. There was a debate that went on internally. The owner, Paul Stark, wonderful guy. Uh, he took the position that, well, if we give him a job, he can't write about our acts anymore. And we're losing our biggest like mouthpiece. Mm. Um, and luckily for me, he lost <laughs> that debate. And, um, and I got a job there. And very quickly after I was hired, my first job there was being the replacement publicist for uh, the Let It Be record, which was, you know, their breakthrough in 1984. And it was the easiest job ever because the phone just rang all the time and they wouldn't talk to anybody. So I just got to pick up the phone and say, thanks for calling. No. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, next time. Um, so, yeah, it was, that was that was my, my entry into the music business. But the guy who, uh, Peter Jesperson, who'd been was one of the founders and who'd signed all the acts there, including the replacements. He left to be their manager and to tour manage REM and tour manage replacements. And 
nobody knew when he left to go on the road that he wasn't coming back, but that turned out to be the case. Um, and there were only three of us there. And just sort of by default, I ended up being the one who had whatever the stupidity or the nerve uh, to try to sign an act or two. So that's, that's where, you know, the door opened for something like Ween. So, yes. Yeah, so, there, there is not something like Ween. There's just Ween. That's true. It's very true. <laughs> so, so tell us about that moment. Well, what was the moment? Where were you? How did that happen? How does uh, Dave Ayers uh, hear about uh, these two teens in Jersey? Well, that's it's sort of a crazy story. There's a, there's a, a group of just out of high school kids, most of whom, if not all of the four members, at least three out of the four members were named Matt. Um, but they went, they became kind of a super group because Matt Quigley wound up getting a deal with Electra, kind of a, a big expensive, you know, bidding war kind of a deal, I think. And Matt Sweeney is still a, you know, a very renowned guitar player with all kinds of people. Um, Matt Coleman became Wings drummer. But this band Skunk, that was all yeah, these guys, Clark, Matt. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Matt was the name he was at the time. I forget which of those two is his his middle name, but um, at the time oh, wow. I knew him as Matt. At the at the time I knew him as Matt. Um, and uh, so the, the idea of like me signing an act was weird enough. Signing an act that I'd never seen was just like a bridge too far. But we didn't have a travel budget. And this tape had come, which is how music would arrive in those days. The cassette would show up in the mail. And this band Skunk, all these guys, Matt, um, delivered something that was really interesting. And, and I you know, fell in love with it. So did everybody else that worked there. And I carried on a phone dialogue with, you know, the, the Matt Sweeney and Quigley for uh, weeks, you know, trying to figure out, you know, uh, does this make sense to work together, whatever, but how do we get over the hump of like, how do I see the band? And, you know, maybe once a year I would travel for like the, um, new music seminar or which was a thing then, or CMJ festival. Right. Oh, CMJ, um, yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe one of those things aligned, but for whatever, however it fell together, I was able to justify a trip, um, to New York and then uh, traveling to uh, a suburban basement in Maplewood, New Jersey. I believe it was the home of Matt Sweeney, maybe Quigley. Um, and they had decided that they, uh, you know, for me to come all that way, they were going to make it a proper event. So they were going to invite some friends over. They're going to play in the basement. Um, I think they were too young to play in clubs. Um, and then just on the eve of this trip, uh, I was on the phone with Sweeney. He's like, you know, um, we've decided you're going to come all this way. We're going to invite our friends. They've all seen us play a million times. It's really not, you know, much of a thing. So to make it a real party, we're going to have these two guys play from New Hope, New Jersey. And they're the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. You're not going to believe it. And, and I, you know, I, I listened to all that um, politely. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's nice of you to go to that trouble. Um, and I said, no, no, seriously, once you see them, you're not going to care about us anymore. Um, and I was like, okay, sure. And, uh, sure enough, the skunk played and they were really good, you know, a little sloppy, but the, the way that you'd want something to be. Um, and then Aaron and Mickey, um, 
Dean and Gene, forgive me, uh, <laughs> got, got up there in, you know, their classic early, uh, 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 Dean, Dean, Deaner in his, uh, rooster skull cap thing that he would tie under his chin. Yep. Um, and with the cock comb on top, you know, um, yeah, just, and, and then, um, Gene in a chef's hat and goggles, and uh, as one does, as a, as a you know bidding rock star does, and uh, yeah, there was a red, white, and blue guitar, um, yeah, and and I was you know it was incredulous, and everybody in the room, some of whom had maybe seen them before, but it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um, there was some backing tape, you know, going on, uh, which they did back in those days. And I remember getting to, you know, it was all fascinating. It was all really good. They were clearly really talented. Um, Gene could really sing. Gene could really play. But they closed with LMLYP. And I, I had brought along our head of marketing, brilliant young woman who, you know, come from Stanford, moved to Minneapolis, um, you, know, this, you know, fresh with her Stanford degree. Um, you know, very learned feminist type um, who uh, had become a good friend and um, was our head of marketing. And they launch into that song. And I'm like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I'm kind of uncomfortable because of the subject matter. And I'm in a room full of strangers, half of whom are women. And, uh, and, and they're all 10 years younger than me. Right. Um, and then I, you know, it's just, I start laughing uncontrollably, and I'm like, I got really got to keep a lid on it here. Jill's going to see me laughing, um, and uh, I look across the room, and she's crying, laughing just like I am. And I'm like, Holy shit, this is really something. We're in. We should do this. Um, so yeah, there's somebody's got a photograph of me giving uh, those guys a, a business card in the kitchen upstairs. Um, and uh, yeah, Mickey gave me a copy of the live squeegee record with his name scrawled on it and his phone number, and uh, that's where it began. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's a, you know the, the the closest thing to like a proper audition I've maybe ever participated in. Um, and it wasn't the first band that I signed. I ended up working with both of them. So two for two that night in Maplewood, New Jersey. That's the certainly the best you know, like winning percentage of all time. <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, they were certainly, you know, among the six or eight first things that I ever, you know, raised my hand and said, yeah, I'll spend somebody else's money on this. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, that was the beginning. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the God, we, I think they were probably, you know, that record was probably a lot written by then. I don't remember exactly the chronology of how much longer it took for that record to land on my desk, but. That's where it started. Yeah, like in a weird way, uh, the album that became Godwin uh, Satan. Uh, yeah, a lot of it was is almost like a greatest hits of all their their stuff until that point, and then like a few new new songs. Um, yeah, there were a lot of cassettes. I you know whenever I move house, I you know I, I, there's a there's a bin that I'll open and there'll be you know cassettes in there, and there's a lot of stuff that didn't make those records, but. That's how it started, you know, um, me getting cassettes in the mail. And a lot of those tracks, yeah, came out pretty much the way they, they had been. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea of 
<laughs> the audaciousness of these two kids who were just out of high school putting out a double record for their debut. It was, it was a pretty outlandish way to start. Yeah. And these are kids, you know, everyone talks about 10,000 hours. I mean, these are guys that, you know, did their 10,000 hours before, you know, they even met you and like they, they had uh, a vibe, they had a feeling, they had something unique and I'm I'm grateful you saw it. (laughs) Well, you know, they, they, they always had very, you know, demanding taste. Uh, you know, we were out there, you know, doing what we could to trade in the music that we could afford to trade in. And that meant sort of rough and tumble, you know, punkish rock, um, you know, Midwestern style. That's what it had been. Um, and they just had no use for like alternative, you know, people who couldn't play very well, right. you know, thinking about their emotions, you know, their record collection that, you know, it was just, it was just the great. It was just, you know, the Beatles and Hendrix and Sinatra and that's, they, they couldn't give a shit about whatever was happening in Seattle at that time. Right. Um, which was, which was funny. You know, the whole thing was so um, off in so many ways. Um, it was perfect. Well, I mean, and, and also just like looking forward a few years because of what happened in Seattle, I'm assuming is, is what helped them get signed to, you know, a, a major was because they were, trying to scoop up as many you know rock bands that that fit the alt uh model i guess well i mean that you know it 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 soon you know splintered into a million different offshoots you know alt alt became a a good catch-all you know word but you know there was so many different you know, there's a singer songwriter aspect to it. There was, you know, the, the, the raggedy, you know, noisy aspect to it that, you know, so again, it might like most labels, it started to mean next to nothing. But I think, you know, record companies recognized that, um, you know, there was, there was a market here. There was a, there was a club scene that could be mined around the country. There was, uh, you know, a, a, a journalistic, you know, a print, support group um you know in the likes of earlier you know the new york rocker but then the village voice um and Spain was just around the corner if not already there um and there was the whole cmj world that you know college radio that was so there was a market and then you had um, P- and only- also like peak mtv is is happening oh, yeah. yeah which which you know certainly you know sort of an ass backwards way it's like beavis and butthead making fun of of Ween turned in, you know, gave them sort of, you know, their first, their first real broad exposure. Um, that's where Push I was Little first. Da- that, that's the first thing that I, uh, I saw was them making fun of uh, Push the Little Daisies. That's that's where no, the hooks went in. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but I know that that contributed to the bleed of that song internationally. And, you know, they wound up with a legitimate hit record in Australia, not like an alternative one, but like a record that was a charted thing. And it, we came so close, you know, I mean, Australia is a relatively small country. So I think a gold record in Australia is like maybe 30,000 copies or something. And I, I recall that at the time, uh, the, we went down there. The, the record was at like twenty eight and a half, and it might still be inching to thirty. Um, <laughs> you know, Thirty five years later, when it died, it died. But um, it was funny, you know, that they were still playing 
in most cities, you know, there was there were the weirdo places where they were adopted early. You know, Philadelphia, obviously, is just down the street. Um, Las Vegas, for some reason, which we can talk about later. Um, but, uh, yeah, Australia. So leaving the U.S., where the two of them would drive around in a car and play with these backing tapes and play to half, you know, empty rooms, um, they were able to, you know, fly all the way to Australia, demanded that they fly in business class because they didn't like to fly. Um, we spent a lot of time debating about whether or not they should go in a boat. That's a real, that's a real <laughs> conversation that went on for a long time because Gene didn't like the idea of flying all that way. It's just too, too long to be in a tube. Um, so we priced it all out and it was like, if you guys want to give up like eight weeks of your life, um, and that might be one way. Um, they could have recorded that, four albums in that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And shipboard entertainment um, <laughs> that, yeah, nobody would have been really ready for. But uh, so we got to, to Australia and yeah, you know, rooms were full. Uh, one of the first, you know, it's, I'd never been there before. Um, so, you know, we all did the, the classic stereotype thing. I think we hadn't even left baggage claim yet. You know, we ran over to the, to the bathroom and just to watch the water run down the sink. Uh, it really <laughs> went the, the other, other way. way. Yeah, exactly. And then we went to the bank to change money and they were recognized. And, oh my God. you know, nowhere, nowhere outside of like New Hope, but the teller, but like, you know, it recognized them, um, which was pretty like, you know, that, that was, that was another watershed moment. Oh no, you're worried. I can't it's my terrible Australian accent. I've been you watching can try a, that. I have I'm a, a five year old. I'm watching a lot of Bluey lately. So all I hear uh -huh. is the Bluey Australian voices in my head. Um, uh, let's just take a quick step back. Um, you've, uh, you're talking with Mickey and you guys strike a, a deal uh, with Twin Tone. And how does the making of that record uh, happen? What does it look like from your end? Uh, you know, tell us, tell us about that. Well, I mean, it's, it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an expensive signing. It wasn't an expensive record to make. Um, I think everybody was satisfied in the end um, with the early returns and it was the only record they would make for Twin Tone. And that's a story we'll have to get into later. But the, um, yeah, that was, that was, it was, you know, it was it's seamless and, and, uh, pleasant as could be until they turned in the artwork for the record uh -huh. and i it's probably the only only active censorship of my entire career and i'm embarrassed about it now um just because you know uh, i i'm meant to be like a, a patron of transgression and uh this was in my mind at the time as transgressive as it could get but it just felt to me like you know these two suburban you know, uh, Jersey, Pennsylvania, wherever those things meet, um, kids putting out a double record for their debut was audacious enough. It didn't need a picture on the cover of two, I don't know, 11 or 12 year old black children with their arms around each other and an album title called, uh, the album title was Brothers. Um, <laughs> And then uh, on the back, there was a picture from more of a distance of the two of them climbing on a bridge. Um, and I just was, I was, I was dumbfounded and I was like, 
I think this is the greatest, I, you know, I feel like I've just discovered like the Beach Boys or something. This is like the most crazy, unique, you know, remarkable thing on the planet. And they're just going to like shoot themselves in the belly, um, you know, before they've even walked out the door. So I, you know, I tried to say no. And I guess I ultimately did because they, cha- you know, they sent something else, um, you know, that that strobing fluorescent thing that uh is god ween satan yeah, the um, album god ween satan the oneness the oneness <laughs> wow that do you what are the odds that you still have that the brothers album cover somewhere um uh, you know I, I i i hate to say that i no i don't um uh i don't know where that went to uh, along with the uh the um chocolate and cheese championship belt which is a much prized thing the 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 money on that the smart money has the designer on having that mounted on the wall in his house someplace oh Um, you think it got back to him well i I don't think he ever let go of it but you know when all was said and done you know the shoot was done and the and and it was like i want that belt and you know there were several people saying i want that belt um and that belt could never be found Uh um but Someone yeah, the brothers that, that, belt. That, that artwork. Hopefully, hopefully one of those guys has that artwork. I, I bet you Dean has it in his archives. He has, um, <laughs> from the stories I've heard, he's got a museum's worth of, of, of Ween memorabilia. That I mean, I would just love to just take a tour and just see, you know, that like the old guitars that were smashed during sound check. Yeah, the uh, I, oh, my. The old four, I know uh, uh, the last interview did was with Ed Wilson, and Ed was given the four track that they recorded Pure Guava on, and he ended up selling it down the line and thought he got it back, but he couldn't get it back. It's just, there's just stuff out there. No, that four track stuff and the tape manipulation and like, you know, that's, that's part of the genius of what they were doing and how complicated it was, you know, um... I work with the Les Paul estate now, so that, you know the beginning of that tape manipulation. You know, uh, it's it's you know it got in my blood <laughs> or something, and um, and I haven't been able to shake it. But yeah, it's um, and Mickey was definitely the keeper of of, of the archive, um, and very good at it. So um, Godwin, a lot of people they always like they always throw Godwin Satan in. Um, with the pod and pure guava as saying these are all like these low lo-fi four track records when that's not really true i mean godwin satan is is a beautifully sound like recorded and it's a beautiful sounding record it is i would not define it as lo-fi uh like it's a it sounds like a studio record i i mean i just think that's probably um convenient way to uh to identify the the methodology you know the technology that was employed Mm -hmm. in the making thereof you know it was it was you know that four track process um you know it's not as gritty as as the pod um certainly um which remains to this day my favorite um the pod the pod is your favorite record of all the records yeah it always has been um, you know, I just, the, the different places that it goes and, um, 
yeah, it's just, it's kind of always had a very special place in my heart, you know, and it also was where they went AWOL. Um, you know, I got a call from, I got a call from, um, Mickey, I think at some point to say that, um, they'd made a record and they couldn't wait for me to hear it. And I was like, Oh, I got to figure out how we're, you know, when we've got room to schedule to put it out. He's like, well, it's coming out on another label. And I'm like, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> you've signed a contract it's like yeah but kramer gave us a trip to jamaica and we signed a paper with him that in return for the trip to jamaica he could have this record um so uh that was the pod and it came out on shimmy disc and i don't remember to this day how i was able to explain and mollify uh paul stark the owner of of, of twin tone to not take legal action, but you know, um, warm hearts prevailed oh, and, good. um, every, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I think honestly that the Godwin Satan title remains like one of the most active in the twin tone catalog, which of course is just a digital streaming thing now, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, it was just a weird moment and I didn't, you know, I was still new at all of this. And I didn't really know how to process it, um, but I knew it was wrong. <laughs> I knew it was a contract violation. Um, and then I had to go out and hear the record. So um, they insisted on playing it for me in person. And uh, I, I, was, I was in New Hope, um, you know, at some point after getting this news. And they had a whole process in mind of, you know, the state that I was going to be in, the time of day or night that it was going to be, the condition, all of that. And that entailed, you know, spending a few hours, you know, uh, around the pool in his parents' backyard. His parents were away someplace. And, um, you know, ingesting just all the right stuff. Mm -hmm. and, the right uh, concoction, you know, get it all right. Yeah, the right <laughs> concoction and, and the grill that, you know, there was food grilled and, and, um, and then, you know, I started it started to get late, and I hadn't heard the record yet. And I'm like, "So, fellas, are we gonna do this?" And it's like, "Yep, now's the time." And so, uh, I, I was escorted upstairs to, um, uh, you know, to Dean's parents' bedroom, and uh, at which point we we all uh, were made to get in bed <laughs> and pull the covers up. Um, and lie on our backs with the lights out. Strap it on the jammy pack. Somebody, somebody pressed play. And, you know, not a word was to be spoken or no, no interruptions until it was over. Um, and that was my introduction to, to the pod. So it's, um, it's you, D to G, all laying in bed with the covers up. Um, yep. On uh, well fed and uh, in yep. both your mind, yep. body, and soul. Yep. <laughs> listening yeah, and, to the pod and embarrassingly and yeah and it was a mind-blowing you know so that may have something to do with my affection to the record just because they got me in exactly the right place i mean i'm as, thinking you know, that's what we so should have speak. done with evan is all get in bed with him there, there you go copious substances and then just be like this is the ride oh my god but that I, is I, hilarious I, i'm embarrassed to say that you know, um, I don't remember if I left that night or the next day, but when whenever his parents returned, um, what 
they found like literally everything in the backyard was in the pool. Anything that didn't float was at the bottom of the pool. Um, but yeah, furniture, um, liquor bottles, um, you know, and meanwhile, you know, I'm like 10 or 12 years, maybe 15 years older than those guys. So I'm supposed to be the grown up. <laughs> so to have been associated with that kind of mayhem was very embarrassing. And it, you know, it took me years to not feel weird around the folks. Oh. Uh, so, I mean, what would, was there a particular song off the pod that hit you at the right time? Um, and why was that song Awesome Sound? <laughs> it just, I mean, you know, I, I should have had a copy handy here. Um, I, you know, there's a stallion in there. Oh, there's, um, there's two, yeah. Right, you know, there's, there's, um, where's my record? Um, the, uh, isn't Big Jim on that record? No, Big Jim's on uh, Pure Guava. But I mean, you have Demon right. Sweat, Captain Fantasy, Right to the right. Ways and the Rules of the World. Don't They're all right on the it. front cover. Yeah. They're all right on that stolen front cover. Um, and yeah, one of my one of my favorite, um, you know, certainly one of the most illustrious credits of, of you know my sad career on the back, which I know is you know meant to be like a little kick in the in the belly. Um, the uh, the suggestion that I was going to help them out. <laughs> um, uh, here it is. Um, yeah, awesome sound. Um, Captain Fantasy. Can you taste the way? Uh, don't don't sweat. There, yeah, I mean it's just one thing after another. Um, sorry, Charlie and Poyo Asado are very unique things. Obviously, mm-hmm. Doctor Rock remains one of my favorite live things. I, yeah. I mean, when they pull that out. Um, yeah, so no, it's pretty much top to bottom. Pork broccoli and cheese. Wait, on, she fucks me. I yeah, mean, I know, I know. One thing after another. And, um, and then you have like beautiful gems like Oh My Dear Falling in Love, which it, like comes out of this murky, gross sludge. And all of a sudden you have like this. I mean, for me, it's like this perfect little pop song that just pops in. And then you have, yeah, I mean, this, this record is great and you do have to be in the right time and place to experience it. Um, yeah, I, I to, to, to get in bed and turn the lights out. Um, maybe alone. That might be the way to do it. Yeah. While listening to the song alone. <laughs> track 19. <laughs> there you go. Oh there my you God. Go. Uh, so, um, and just a, a quick step back to Godween Satan. You are, you know, the one that signed them, the, the labels happy with the way the record is selling. What was the promotion like on your end to get this record out? The Godwin Satan record? Yeah. I mean, promotion. I mean, yeah, I guess to, it, it's a bigger question about like A and R and like, and like what your role is. Um, and just trying to understand like the A and R aspect of the business. Well, I mean, internally, a big part of it was explaining why, um, you know, Peter, Peter, the guy who, you know, whose chair that I tried to step in and fill, I think to this day, you know, is kind of embarrassed that, <laughs> like, what were you thinking? Um, 
you know, it's, uh, it, it, they're not everybody's cup of tea, which is, which is what's so brilliant about them. I mean, yeah. that's, that's yeah. any art that's worth a shit shouldn't be, you know, for everybody. Right. Um, and so, it's Thomas uh, Kincaid. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, um, so yeah, internally there was a, there was a battle, but the fact that I came home from Maple with, with Jill on my side, you know, that was fully half the staff, she and I, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was to, to break a tie. All you'd have to do is flip a coin, and we must have won. Um, but so that, that, there was an internal battle. In, in terms of the outside world, uh, you know, there wasn't much in the way of marketing. Employment. We sent the records to all of the CMJ panel stations and, you know, to all the journalists, and some people got it and some people didn't. And there's a few times in my career that um, I've had the good fortune of knowing um, that I'm right and it doesn't matter how long it takes. And this was one of them. Um, so I wasn't necessarily in a hurry. And I think if, if you're in that situation, you're possessed of that rare feeling that, you know, you're in the right, then being in a hurry is just going to fuck it up. Right. So, um, them getting out and playing for people and just, you know, sharing the love of what a ween show can be sharing the Brown, um, was the way it was going to happen best and at the time it was just the two of them and, and the backing tapes which I think maybe we graduated to you know uh, some dead format DAT or ADAT or whatever you know at some point along in, in the, between Godwin Satan and the pod and Pure Guava um, and then and then you know I became initially it always felt like well they're going to grow out of this and then I became very attached to it the two guys in backing tapes so when they introduced the idea of like, we're going to have a band, I was like, oh no, that's going to spoil it. Mm-hmm. And the band was insanely, I mean, Andrew Weiss is maybe the best live bass player, rock bass player I've ever seen. Yeah, and I got intense. to see dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And um, yeah, that was, that band was incredible. Yes. Yeah, so you had Claude, uh, who, whose name is Matt, which I love. We have Claude, we have Andrew, and we have Dean and Gene in those early kind of touring days. And that was, was that post Pure Guava is, is when the band started becoming uh, the band and they lost the tape? Uh, the, yeah, the I, 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 it, it, it had to have happened right around then. It's like there wouldn't have been probably, you know, audience enough guarantees enough to justify you know four guys but at some point in there and i don't remember exactly when the switch happened i you know maybe it was when they had decided to to you know uh to spurn the record company um that i i shifted from being a and r guy to manager but at some point along there and so you know i had the the responsibility of making budgets work and i know the four-man thing um you know, it was going to be more expensive than two. Right. I can do, I can do that simple arithmetic. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it, you know, they could certainly tell you, but, um, but around the pure guava era, I think is when it, it, it got to be four people between that record and chocolate and cheese. Well, now that we're talking about pure guava, can we talk about, um, I mean, that was their, their move, uh, to Electra, right? Was Am I, am I right on that? That's it was. Yep. yep, yep. Disc was a pod and then to Electra. Can we? So you're yeah, managing three. the band. How does how does that um, that major label negotiation happened? Happened. 
Well, I mean, the three records, three labels thing is a good trick. Um, you know, a lot of continuity and um, the, the, the sh- you know, Shimmy just probably didn't do a whole lot more or less than what we were able to do at Twin Tone. But that the band had gotten on the map um, in a way with, you know, enough journalists and enough college radio stations. And for some reason, they started selling a lot of tickets in Las Vegas and a few other places that were early adopters. Um, but one of those people that bought in early is a guy named Steve Robofsky who was at Electra, And he started coming to the shows and, you know, saw the same thing. Like, this is so unique and crazy um, that there's a bigger audience certainly available because in addition to being unique and crazy, both of these guys are incredibly gifted at what they do, you know, um, as players and singers. So um, the the material... Um, Pure Guava was recorded in, in, you know, similar swift, um, you know, not terribly sophisticated fashion. Um, Didn't cost a lot of money, you know, hundreds of dollars. Um, Certainly not not much into four figures if it was. And, um, you know, just because Steve was somebody I'd become friendly with, I played it for him. And he just became obsessed with the idea of putting the record out. So this game commenced, you know, to get... Steve to agree to put out the record and sign him, sign the band to Electra, um, without us shopping the band anywhere else. So oh, the illusion nice. of the illusion of competition that if other people hear this record, it's going to get really expensive and I'm, I might lose them was the only leverage we have. This is like this false leverage that he had to make a preemptive bid right. and get in on God the ground floor now. Yeah, he he ultimately did, and it's a crazy contract. I mean, they, you know, the band owns that record. Um, it was a license because it was recorded already. So it was a license to Electra for, I don't know, ten or twelve or fifteen years or something. I'm sure it's back in their hands by now. Um, and you know, a lot of money. Uh, you know, a couple hundred, maybe three hundred thousand um, dollars for a record that cost you know hundreds of dollars right. um, wow. to make. Um, and you know, it's absurd stipulations in the contract, you know, nobody from the record company can come to the studio ever. Um, you know, it's just shit that doesn't get in a contract. Um, and Steve, like I said, had the, had the good humor and, and foresight, um, to sign on for all of that nonsense. Um, so yeah. And then happily because of Beavis and Butthead, um, Steve was made to look really smart. Um, cause the record did just fine. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the beginning of the Electra era. Steve wasn't there too terribly much longer. There was a changing of the guard, um, you know, and people who succeeded him and the original cast there, um, you know, Sylvia Roan came in and God bless her, you know, she didn't really understand what they were up to. Um, but you know, it was nominally supportive. The numbers probably looked all right. And, you know, they continued signing on and putting out more records for, for a while. And that original contract, was that like a three record deal, a four record deal, or is it just, no, no, no. This, this was back in the day of like record companies, like seven record deals. Um, so, um, record companies demanded a lot of options 
back then. Right. I think we probably, because we had some leverage, we maybe got it down to, you know, one plus four or five, but it was, it was a long commitment. Um, and I know that the first, um, what I believe to be true is that it was um, a license for pure guava and then two firm records after that. Like the record company didn't have an option. They didn't have a choice. They right. were locked in two records after pure guava. So um, the second of which ended up being the country record. Right. If my, <laughs> if my math is right. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a crazy trail. Um, so there. You, so, and you're, you're just like full-blooded uh, band manager at this time. Are you managing any other bands besides Ween during this time? Yeah, I have the weirdest roster. And so, uh, you know, my, my introduction to management was um, Soul Asylum was at Twin Tone, had been signed by Peter, um, had put out a record that I, I, I didn't like very much and wrote a fairly negative review for the local paper. Um, but then when Peter left, um, one of those guys brought in like their new single that Bob Mould had um, from Husker Du had produced. And I really liked the single. And, you know, Peter had been long gone and the record, the first record didn't do much. So they were kind of orphaned. And so I, you know, even though we started off as sort of um, in opposite corners and I wasn't um, a supporter, um, I became their advocate internally and um, we put out the single and then, Put out a few records in quick succession, and uh, you know that band was playing great shows at the time, and um, made some really good records for uh, not much money. And uh, it, suddenly, people were starting to pay attention, and, and they needed a manager. And I was so naive about the business at the time; I thought they were going to be better, in, you know, better looked after with the likes of me then they would be signing on with some, you know, shark in New York or right. LA. Um, so, you know, it was just like, I'll do this until I, you know, until I distinguish myself as incompetent <laughs> and, um, you know, at least get you to the next place. Um, so that was my introduction into management. And so they were a client, um, Ween, uh, a singer songwriter uh, named Joe Henry, who was on Coyote Records initially, and then went to A and M. Um, who's gone on to win several Grammy awards as a producer, um, and uh, and Helmet, who kind of changed the sound of of you know uh, merged sort of punk rock and 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 metal um, in the early nineties. Um, yeah, and we're subject to, of a big bidding war. So yeah, those are my four clients and they're like, you know, four points on a compass. They couldn't be different from one another. Um, and, um, it, for some reason they all made sense to me and I liked the people involved in all of them. So that was my little management roster. And, and were you managing, um, what was the helmet song? Was it unsung? Was that the, yep. And so That's, you were yeah. that time. Wow. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Dave, and I told you this when, when we spoke the other day in the pre-interview, I mean, so many of the records that you had your fingerprints on are are sitting in my CD binders that I've had, you know, since I was, you know, 15 <laughs> years binders. old, like the Jesus Lizard. I mean, I just, right. and they're, you know, they're all in storage right now, but, and I can't wait to, yep. till I have space to kind of go through, but I mean. Get out you, those CDs again. Yeah. 
And, and yeah. I can't wait for them to have CDs to have a revolution because I'm I've kept have, all of mine because yeah. I, I think my 15 year old son is going to be able to like pay for, you know, college or graduate school or something with, you know, or drugs. I don't know what <laughs> um, with, with my CD collection. But no, it's uh, that was a, it was probably five years from beginning to end of me as a manager. It's a terrible job. You know, it's just, the, you know, it's if you get to a certain point, it's like somebody like John Silva, you know, he only he only manages people who are self-starters and are kind of capable of managing themselves and have careers sort of already up and running. And that's probably not the worst job on earth. But by and large, it's just, you know, it's 24-7 and, you know, you're going to wind up just like baseball managers. You're going to wind up getting fired in the end. Right. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's exhausting. Who, who, and Who's this guy taking a tenth? You know, uh, well, the tenth, yeah. I mean, fifteen percent. I got good at multiplying times point one five. That's for <laughs> sure. Um, to, to to make rent, but no, it's it's you know, you manage the band, and then and you also then de facto manage the crew, and then all of their significant others. So when you wake up in the morning, any one of you've got four acts. Any one of like sixty or seventy people could be in your head with their problem as right. soon as you wake up in the morning, and that's it's exhausting. <laughs> So I don't do that anymore, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> so, uh, so that brings us around to ch- uh, Chocolate and Cheese, uh, which I mean, is that their? That's probably their best-selling record. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know the numbers on the on these sorts of things. Um, so you were there for, I mean, for all of that, and what was that? It seems like they were on the uptick. This is post Beavis and Butthead. Um, you know, this is post, you know, the success in Australia. They had a bigger budget for music videos. And, uh, and can you tell us about that period of the band? Well, they certainly upgraded. You know, they um, got bored with their sort of lo-fi uh, process. And, you know, like so many things, you know, the stories, the story that's on the back of the fearful story on the back of the pod is, you know, but one of many um, tearful tales from those guys that just like, whether it's illness or famine or, you know, some sort of, some sort of curse that comes over them. So, yeah, I have recollections of like renting a space someplace and, uh, you know, a board and really upgrading the whole thing and then a flood, you know, Mm. everything got ruined, you know, just um, I, I don't have the chronology in my head completely, but you know, it, it wasn't an easy process as I remember. Um, but it was, you know, it was back to a double record. Um, and, uh, you know, because they'd gone away from that with, with pure guava. Um, and yeah, there was definitely more attention coming from the record company. Um, you know, the, I think they saw an opportunity there, you know, there's a couple of videos. There was the movie um, happened in there at some point. It's Pat. It's Pat, yeah. Um, um, and that guy's gone on to um, be like a successful director, and you know that was I think his first his first feature. Um, so yeah, there, there was just people sniffed more opportunity, and you know the shows had bec- they'd become a, you know by that point a touring phenomenon, and, and it, it had become frustrating to everybody involved. Um, that the live business, you know, 
was so much stronger than the recorded ween business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it felt like, you know, if we just sold a record to everybody that came to a show, we'd sell more records than we're selling. Um, you know, just something felt wrong. And, and whether it was just that there was never a radio track per se, um, you know, uh, the first one of those that really, and I was no longer involved apart from, you know, being a distant friend and, you know, being in touch and going to shows from time to time. But uh, when Ocean Man came along on the Mollusk, I remember reaching out to those guys and saying, you know, if, if, if you just add a bridge and <laughs> if you put a little bit of craft into this thing, um, this could be the one. And of course that got shot down. Um, but that song did get licensed a bunch, um, yeah. but there's a real hook there. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's like everything felt more, you know, uh, high octane, mm-hmm. um, with chocolate and cheese and it had the fancy cover and, um, that you couldn't get away with anymore, um, certainly. And, uh, but, you know, it, 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 I think in the end, you know, compounded sort of, uh, lingering or, or, you know, festering frustrations about, you know, where do we fit in and how do we make this really go, um, someplace else? Um, so yeah, that was, and that was sort of the, the end for, for me, you know, the, um, uh, at the time, I was uh, running a little um, publishing joint venture, and I had those four management clients. Soul Sound had moved on, um, and then they had all their success, of course, right after I got off the bus. Yeah, the, um, the train ran away. Yeah, the train ran away, and with a lot of money on it, and I, I was no longer, you know, sitting there um, to help count it um, times point one five. The um, but, but yeah, that was sort of the tail. That was the very end of my my management days because my dad had had gotten ill, and um, I was having a lot of fun and um, doing exactly what I wanted and working with people that I really liked. But I wasn't really making any money, and I needed to take care of my dad. So um, I took a job at a record company, which you know had been out there for me for you know several years, and I had just like that just seemed like the absolute worst idea on the planet. And it kind of was, I was at Capitol for six and a half years, but you know, it was, it was a you know, situation that was necessitated by, you know, family responsibilities, whatever. And I yeah. learned a lot and I, you know, I, I worked with some great people there and, um, but uh, I was no longer uh, in the management business. So the, the country record, yeah, I was, I found myself for the first time, you know, uh, a guy in the audience, um, you know, watching those shows and that, that uh, hot shit Nashville band. Um, so yeah, that was my first sort of glimpse at it from the outside. Well, and so, and you've remained friendly with the band. Is there anything about the um, like, like there's there's something I don't want to like compare it to Lennon McCartney though I just did right there um but like there there's there's something beautiful about you know Aaron's voice and Aaron's um um influences and what he brings to the band and also then what Dean and like there's a gritty rock and rollness that he brings and it just gels so so perfectly um there's a question in here somewhere. I'm not sure what the question no, is. I, I, 
I know where you're going. And, and it's no, there's those, those marriages, you know, you're a married guy. Marriage, oh, yeah. marriage is complicated. I'm, you know, I, I, I wish your wife the best. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's really, it, it's, it's a really tough thing to do. And, and in a creative marriage, which, you know, any band is, you know, it's, it's, it's even tougher, I think, because, you know, you know, sex isn't on the table. Yeah. It's just like, it's just all of these, you're fucking emotions again, you know, somebody's feelings and taste and, you know, and all their bad habits, but you don't get any of the good. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And I think that those, those guys, you know, from the beginning, there was one argument early on. I can't remember what it was about, but I remember getting a call um, and it was just sort of a cautionary, like, I want you to know that, you know, you've raised this issue and it's put the two of us at odds and we don't ever want to be there again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just be careful. You know, and, and, you know, and I, I understood it to, you know, they were like brothers and they fought like brothers um, and they loved one another like brothers. And I think all of that is probably, you know, true to this day. Um, I mean, but Dave, yeah, maybe tension- that, that first record should have been called Brothers. <laughs> exactly. No, that tension, I think, is, is a necessary thing to making great work, you know, and whether you're talking about Lennon and McCartney or in my era, you know, it's, uh, you know, Bob and Grant or Jeff and Jay, um, you know, uh, were they ever as good without the their foil or their combatant, you know, um, argue, arguable. Um, and I think that was true with these guys. You know, it's... Um, Mickey's done his moist boys thing and Aaron's made his records and there's, you know, um, good qualities to both of those things, but it's not, it's never, it never has quite the same magic to it. Speaking of marriage, the one thing I, I, I wanted to, t- the, uh, um, the Las I don't Vegas remember wedding, right? what year it was. Yeah. Las Vegas was, um, one of the first places to sign on to wean. And we started seeing like, you know, other markets, that were bigger, we'd do 200 tickets and in Las Vegas, they'd do 500 and Las Vegas would come in with a big offer for new year's Eve. And like, what the fuck is it about Las Vegas? You know, is it, is it dealers that really like wean? You know, what, what is, what is it dancers? What is it, it? What is it about this? But for whatever reason it was happening. So when Aaron got married, um, Las Vegas was the natural uh, choice and it was a tour stop. It they was, were uh, on tour. August seventh, nineteen ninety nine. August seventh, nineteen. So um, I want to say that they were either on tour with, or they had recently been on tour with, because there was a whole run that we did um, with Caius, um, which was, was Josh Homme went on to, mm-hmm. you know, um, and still is Queens of the Stone Age. Um, but uh, so yeah, the entertainment at the wedding, which was at. Um, it wasn't the hard rock. That would have been too obvious. Um, it's escaping me. But one of those giant hotels, mm-hmm. you know, with 17 restaurants. And, um, yeah, just too many people. Anyway, I, I hate Las Vegas. Um, I, you know, I, I, I've been there, I think, three times. Once by accident, you know, <laughs> driving through. And then the wedding. And then my brother, who we knew was going to pass away, he liked Las Vegas and he had his 50th birthday party there when he was late in his life and he was sick. Um, so it takes something really serious to get me to go to Las Vegas and Aaron's, Aaron's wedding certainly qualified. But the, the, the notable thing about, about that was just that, um, so family and friends are all assembled. 
and uh, you know, ceremony has happened. Entertainment comes out, and I think the guy's name is uh, Nick Oliveri, um, who I think became sort of famous for this. I didn't know it at the he time. He was the bass player for Caius, right? He's the bass player or the guitar player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, within the first, like, you know, 90 seconds, he was naked. <laughs> um, and, and and it was something that, like I said, he, he you know, he was famous. He's been arrested for it since, whatever. But it's just like being in a room with, you know, the grandmothers and, and the nieces and nephews um, and and this naked man with a guitar um, for the whole for the whole set. Just not, not just a flash. This is like, you know, he's committed. Um, yeah, a very, a very wean, a very wean moment in time. I actually was on a family vacation to Florida in 2001 or maybe it was 2002, and Ween just so happened to be playing the House of Blues in in uh, like in the Disney complex, and so I was like, I was 20, 21, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to this. So I went, and Queens of the Stone Age opened, and and oh then and during the and this was before anyone knew who you know Queens of the Stone Age was. I didn't know who they were. Right. And during the Ween set, Nick came on stage. And was butt ass naked, and he was blowing fireballs during the end of this ween set, and it was the most shocking thing. And then they ended, I think, with the poop ship destroyer, or it was just like twenty minutes of like just like feedback noise because they had like a, a ten o'clock. The show had to be over Disney Mickey Mouse rules, and I remember it was the most like shocking thing that I've seen at a concert, uh, perhaps ever. Uh, the, and the, out of the blue. Yeah, I mean, t- talk about taking poop ship to another level. I mean, that I I, I was telling you um, when we spoke the other day that uh, you know they they were always careful to embed like some serious turd in every record. Like someplace in the middle would be a song that would just defy the listener to get through it. Yeah, and you know I would always have the you know the completely useless argument about do we really need that song? Does it really need to be in the middle? Um, and I would always lose, and then they would always dedicate that song to me on stage, um, just to rub it in. Um, but Poop Ship, you know, Poop Ship rises above that. Um, there's a there's a level of sublime, you know, brilliance to that. And it, yeah, it has everything to do with um, what became known as the Shit Mister. We're gonna get out the Shit Mister. And if you can think of anything more brown than a Shit Mister, yeah, it is literally um, brown. That, that is that is as brown as it gets. But yeah, there was a, there was a I want to say a forty minute you know um, time may may be more generous um, in with the passage of time. But um, yeah, of that song in Minneapolis once upon a time, which of course they did because it was my hometown. Um, <laughs> but it was it was it was glorious. This um, one goes up to Dave Ayers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, for the next forty minutes. Um, we defy you to stay in this room. Um, yeah, those were the days. Um, um, and just, I mean, some quick, uh, quick little uh, questions. Uh, you said your favorite Ween album is the Pod. Do you have a favorite Ween song across the catalog? Uh, and it's a tough question. It, it is. It's a tough question. You know, it. Um, early on, the, there were things. I've always been. Uh, the the whole 
you know, Stallion Legacy is, is dear to me. Um, you know, it's, uh, I argued for a long time that, you know, for we just to justify more jams like LMLYP, not in subject matter, but in, in, in musical tone, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that maybe there should be a funkadelic to their parliament, you know, and there should be a whole like segregated realm for this thing to live in. Um, I didn't win that one either. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there's, there's been, you know, very few songs to, to follow in the tradition of that one, you know, cheer for Eddie in some sort of a way, um, which I, you know, I pull that one out every once in a while still. Oh yeah. There's uh, some great live versions of that out there too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, the big thing that I've learned is that we has remained true to themselves uh, for what seems like their career. They get their first record and then they decide, I'm just going to ignore that contract and go to another record company and get a record there and then move on to another record company. We're going to play our songs our way. We're, we're, we have a manager and we're not going to listen to them all the time. And, you know, and it seems like that is their, their, their train that they're on. And that is... Uh, that is that is punk. That is uh, you know a band doing it on their own, their way. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, yeah. So back to the favorite song. In some ways, um, just because of of all of that, um, one of the things that that's always been closest to my heart is "Sorry, Charlie." It's such a sad tale, but it's so. <laughs> It's so, it's such a ween tale. Yeah, um, things didn't work out the way you planned it. So simple, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, Dave, thank you so, so much. Um, this has been a pleasure. Um, if you ever uh, think of ween stories that you wish you could tell, um, you know, let me know, and we will gladly, gladly, gladly have <laughs> yeah, you right. back. Um, uh, thank you so, so much. The cards and letters. No, thanks. Thanks. This has been really fun. I uh, appreciate it. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.